earlier this month, as we got into our Christmas season, we began talking about, within going through one specific verse, Isaiah chapter 6, 9, verse 6. We've been kind of letting that verse be the theme for our Christmas season as we begin to understand and learn about what is the character of this Messiah that God has sent. Remember in the first week we talked about how it was how he was not just an advisor, not just a counselor like you have where you sit on the couch and you sipping your tea or sipping your coffee and the counselor sits in the other side of the room taking notes or playing tic-tac-toe while you're sharing your deepest, darkest secrets with them. This was an advisor, the counselor to the king, the one who gave the greatest advice possible. And we have access to that as he advises us and gives us guidance how to live our lives. And last week we talked about how he was the mighty, mighty God, the greatest power out there. And we offered up to him at the end of service. We laid our hands out there. We said, God, all of these problems, all of our frustrations, all these things that we are going through, we offer up to you to take care of on our behalf. Because you are the mighty, mighty God who fights for us. And we talked about, too, how God gave this passage here in Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ. Because he was so excited to share with the world what was coming. He'd been planning it for thousands, a couple thousands of years prior to that. He put the promises out there. He'd thrown it out there with the prophets. This is what's happening. But now I'm going to share with you who down the prophecy that we've been reading. So I want to join you in opening up your Bibles this morning as we're going to read again Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, as we look at this passage here and, and we begin to understand what it is that God has done, what it is that God is bringing into our midst, what it is he did for us as we're going to look at one more of the names this morning and then we'll conclude next week. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So, but there will be no gloom for who, for who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his children and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel to the fire. But then there's the key verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you understand what God has given to us? What awesome responsibility, what awesome joy we have in, in, in this very simple four name, four names that are given here in this passage. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. 
the power and the majesty that we have to claim as our own because God desires for us to know his name. See, God's names are important, right? And God is rhinoceros, triceratops, alligator, cat. I think Satan named the cat. He gave Adam the privilege of naming all those animals. We have the privilege as parents of naming our children, of giving them names that we hope that they're going to embody as they grow up. God calls us Christian, people of Christ. He gave the name Jesus, Emmanuel, Savior of the world. And here we have these names before us in this passage Wonderful Counselor. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. He'll be called Mighty God. He'll be called Everlasting Father. He'll be called the Prince of Peace. And we've been going through that. Before we get into the title of Everlasting Father this morning, let's back up a little bit and look, go through a little bit of brief history lesson of Israel. A little brief history lesson to kind of give us some grounding and, and as we get move forward into this uh, name so we can have a fuller understanding of what it is. Israel started out, well, the promise started out with Abraham. God came to Abraham, who was without child, and he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Out of your loins, I'm going to raise up a huge nation. If you can count the sands in the sea and the stars in the sky, that's how many descendants you'll have. And Abraham, at that point, doesn't even have any kids. He was... His wife was barren, and so he's, what can I do? So I'll take my wife's handmaiden, and I'll, I'll have a child by her. Maybe surely that's who God meant. Doesn't necessarily have to come through Sarah, but I'm going to, and he has a child called Ishmael, who became the father of the Arab nations. But God says, no, not that child. Your wife will bear you a child. That will be the child of promise, Isaac. That will be the child through which my salvation for the world is going to come. Through that child. Isaac was, came on the scene. When got himself a wife. Had a couple kids. One was named Esau. One was named Jacob. They were twin boys. My wife always, Regina always wanted to have twins. She always wanted to have twins. Every, every time she got pregnant, she said, God, let the, except for the last one. <laughs> God, we'll be done this time. She said, I, I want twins, I want twins, I want twins. She would have been fine with triplets. She wanted to have multiples. I don't know why. That's what she wanted. So Isaac is here. He has twins that are born. Esau is born first. And Jacob is born sick and reaching out and grabbing his brother's heel as he came out. Jacob was given that name, which means supplanter or usurper or trickster. And that kind of fit his character. If you read through the book of Genesis, you look at throughout his life, he kind of had that ideal. He, he, was, he was this con man, this trickster who tried to get his way through alternate means, we'll say. You know, he stole his brother's birthright. Well, he tricked his brother into selling him his birthright, right? His brother came out from hunting in the fields all day long, and, 
I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Jacob, give me some soup. Not until you give me your birthright. You understand, in that time and day, the birthright was not just when, when, when my folks die. My dad has already set up in his will that each of us four kids are going to get a 25% share of whatever's left when he and my mom finally pass. But in this day and age, they would have divided that up not four ways, but five ways. And the oldest son, me, would get two shares out of the five in our family which I think is totally fair myself. All firstborns agree? Amen. It's passed. Motion carries. So Jacob was not just getting Esau's half. He wanted the two-thirds. You can have the third. I'll get the We're going to trade. Because I want to be the firstborn. He tricked him into doing that. Later on, as, as, as toward the end of, of, of Isaac's life, as he's getting ready to come and to bless his sons, he comes in, and, and Isaac comes in, or Jacob comes in, rather, and he's put fur on his arms, and his dad, who's blind, can't f- see, and he, he's, oh, Esau, let me bless you. I feel that you are my hairy son. I said, my bald son. And let me put this blessing upon you. And he blesses Jacob. Jacob steals Esau's blessing. Esau comes in and says, Dad, Dad, you can still, surely you still have a blessing left for me. And Isaac doesn't give him a really great blessing. Jacob conned him out of what was due. Jacob was not the greatest, didn't have the greatest character. But I love that God stepped out of heaven and met Jacob right where he was. Where God comes and he appears to Jacob at night in a dream. And basically Jacob wrestles with him all night long until God touches his hip and throws it out of socket. And he says that you are no longer going to be called Jacob, but I'm going to call you Israel. Because you have wrestled with God. You have wrestled with God. And you've come out of that. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn there. This is a great story. Genesis chapter 32. A great story here of how Jacob wrestles with God. And God does something great in Jacob's life, or Israel's life. Genesis chapter 32, verse 24 through 28. It says, And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. He said, Let me go, for the day is broken. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Again, he's still looking for that. And he said to him, What's your name? He said, Jacob. Then the man said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Is there ever a time when we think we can fight with God? God always gets the upper hand, right? But here God changed his name to Jacob. So no longer was he going to be known as the conniver, the trickster, the usurper, the con man. He was now going to be Israel, the father of the nation. Jacob has 12 sons. Those sons grow up to be the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. From which the Messiah 
that Christ would be born out of the tribe of Judah. Out of that land, the Messiah would come. In spite of all that had happened in the past, in spite of all the negative that took place, in spite of nation upon nation leaving God and ignoring God and not following after God, God's plan still went forward. If we think we can overcome God's plan, as human beings, we are to pass. And we look here in the book of Isaiah this morning in the, in the passage we read earlier, understanding that Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ. In fact, it was from like 740 to 680 B.C. It was written a long time before Christ. And God was there going, look, this is who I'm sending to you. This is the plan I have for you. At the time that it was written, the northern tribe of Israel was fighting against Assyria. And they were frustrated. They were at constant war against Assyria. The Assyria was coming in and being pushed down, coming in, being pushed down. And eventually, we know they came in and took over and took over the northern kingdom there. And Isaiah was written to give the nation hope, to let them know this is in God's plan as well. The first 39 chapters warns Israel about the war and tells them how to cope with it. It says, be aware this is going to happen. But take heart. Chapters 40 through 66 were written there to show them how to live in the aftermath of that war, to give them hope, and tells them how to live with that hope. This world around us today, people live without the hope of Christ. They're living their lives going, working 40, 50, 60, 80 hours a week, just trying to get through their lives without the hope of the Messiah, without the hope of the Savior within them. And our job, much like the job of the prophet Isaiah, is to share that hope with everybody we come in contact with. With everybody we come in contact with. There are no accidents in our lives. God brings people into our lives that He wants us to interact with. Remember those five intersections of life I've been preaching about for the past 85 years? You know, wherever you workshop, eat, play, and live. Workshop, eat, play, and live. Those intersections of life that God brings people into our midst so that we can then share the joy of Christ, so we can share the love of Christ, so we can share the peace of Christ, so we can share the hope of Christ with them so they can understand what it is that God did for them. When we could not come to God, He reached down and brought us along, brought us God tells us, see the enemies coming in, you see the armies of Assyria coming in, and they're taking over your land, but have hope. I have not abandoned you. My plan is still moving forward. In fact, 700 years from now, there's going to be a birth. A babe will be born of a virgin, and that baby will save the world. Maybe not the way you think, but I'm laying the groundwork for the salvation of the people. Within the book of Isaiah, he, he kind of fine-tunes this a little more. In the section of seven, chapter 7 through 12, they call it the book of Emmanuel. And within that, those five or six chapters there, God lays out some really awesome stuff. It's part of where we get this from. It's all describing the Messiah and what's coming. In fact, in, in, in uh, ver- chapter 7, verse 14, he talks about the virgin birth. In chapter 11, verse 1, he says, he's going to be of the, a shoot out of the root of Jesse. He's going to come up out of the house of Jesse, which we know later on from our, our studies, if you know 
looking back in Samuel, that's the father of David. And in verse 2 there in chapter 11, he says God's spirit will be upon him. And then, of course, we just read in chapter 9 about the names, about his character, what he's going to be like. And there are all other passages all throughout those five or six chapters that describe and share with us about this Emmanuel. Because God is with us. Take heart. Take joy. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Today, as we look at that name, Everlasting Father. Doesn't that seem like a weird name to give a child? Isn't God our Heavenly Father? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son, right? You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three are one. One are three. Three are one. So it doesn't really, it's, if he's calling himself everlasting, and yet, if this baby is truly God, then why not what he's going to be like? Abi is there, it's the, the chief father at a monster. It's why they called them the abbots, the Catholic Church did. As everyone, this is abbot here, abbot this, abbot this. They were in charge of the monastery. The word odd is everlasting, eternal, unceasing in all duration. So this baby that's born in Bethlehem will be recognized as eternal, not as finite, but infinite, eternal. So he existed, he had no beginning and no end. He existed before coming to earth, and he will exist long after this earth and we are gone. He is the eternal God, ever lasting but why this name could it be that at the time that this was written 700 something AD BC rather it was a shaky time for the people they saw Assyria coming in they were wondering about their future it was a shaky time for them and needed some encouragement they needed some hope they needed to know that God still had, in spite of all the frustration what goes on around us in spite of all the shakiness of whether it's jobs or health or government intrusion or whatever else may be going on around us God still has our backs I've heard some some of our friends back in China that it's it's tough on the church in China right now I rejoice that we can meet openly. We don't have to worry about stormtroopers coming in here and breaking down our doors and arresting your pastor and, and putting our leadership in jail. We don't have to worry about that, but our brothers and sisters in China do not have that freedom. Churches are being shut down every week. They'll be in the middle of a service, and in come the police, and they're arresting the pastors and putting them in jail for four, five, six years or more. And they're making the congregations leave. They're setting up facial recognition cameras out in front of the church so they can videotape everybody who comes into that building so they know exactly who to go and arrest. Shaky times. Frustrating times. Times of high anxiety, right? And yet God said, I'm everlasting Father. I am still in control. I am still the hope that you need. He knew that we needed that hope of the eternal, that life goes on beyond this, everlasting, that this is not all there is, that we can trust and know that God is out there. He's from beginning to end. He's the Alpha and Omega. 
This is not all there is. We're just temporary passers through in this world. This beautiful world that he created, but we're only here for 60, 70, 80, 100 years. We've got a whole eternity ahead of us that will never end. And yet we choose sometimes to live, to try to get our joy right here and right now in the temporal life that we live in instead of thinking of the eternal that's ahead of us. He also knew we needed a father figure in our lives, one that we can depend on. One of Satan's biggest ploys, at least over the past several decades that I've been paying attention to, and I'm sure it's been going on for years before that too, is to destroy the role of the father in, the family, in our society and to our kids. They're vital. We're not just to sit back and play on our phones and watch sports all day long. We're to take an active, vital part in the raising of our kids. And God knew that we would need that father figure. So he said, here I am. I am the father figure you can mimic, that you can model, that you can be like me. Follow my example as you raise these beautiful kids that I'm giving you. So that you can be this example in our society, in our culture, in the neighborhood around you. As Satan tries to destroy that. So let's take a look at the those two parts of that now. Jesus is our everlasting one. Jesus is the everlasting one for us. What does that mean? See, during his, his ministry, Jesus was questioned on many, many different issues. He was questioned on his motives. He was questioned on his origins. He was questioned on his authorities. Every time the, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees always kept coming up to him, who are you, who are you, why are you doing this, how do you know you have authority to do this, where'd you come from? We know you came from Nazareth. We know your dad was a carpenter. And I love what he says in John chapter 8, verse 56 and 58. It'll be on the screen. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So Jews said to him, You're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham, right? You think that'd be valid? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And immediately after that, they were like, ripping out their hair and their beards. They're, what are you saying? They were throwing, wanting to pick up rocks and throw them. They understood exactly what he was saying, that he was the eternal God. Not, he was in that place, not as in the temporal time zone. He was there from beginning to end. He was there when Abraham was born. He was there when Abraham gave birth to Isaac. He was there when Isaac's family gave birth to... Oh, Abraham didn't give birth to Isaac. You don't have a name, though. He was there when Jacob was born. He was there when, when Jacob connived and took the birthright from Esau. He was there when he went back and begged forgiveness from Esau. He was there when Jacob's 12 sons were born. He was there when Joseph went into the pit, got sold in. When Isaiah wrote these words, he said, before Abraham was, I am. He told them, I am the everlasting God. I have been around for thousands and thousands and millions and billions of years before I ever created this world and the people and this universe that we exist in today, I was around as God because I am God. And if you read through the book of John, you see there's seven or eight different places where he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the open door. I am, I am, I am. And he makes this declaration about his deity, letting them know, I am the God you are looking for. I'm not just a simple man. I came to do something 
in this world that only God can do, and that's to redeem mankind. Yes, we, we honor him as a little baby. We look at him in that manger, oh, isn't he cute? He's got little dimples. Yes, God is cute. God may have had dimples. We don't know. He grew up, and he said, I am the God you've been looking for. I am the one, the promised one that was made promised years and years and years and years ago. I came here to redeem mankind. I'm the everlasting one. He is the eternal, the Father forever. Jesus is our Father figure as well. He is the Father figure we, we need. He's the one we look to, the one that we anxiously await. See, when Jesus grew up, he cared for people just as a father does. He didn't just walk through as a king, bow down, bow down, throw your gold and your silver and your jewels. You may touch the hem of my garment. He had every right to. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, but he walked around caring for the people around him as a father should do, right? He nurtured the sick back to health as a father should. I'm strong and dependable like a father. Your kids and, and my, my kids, they, they look to me as the, to be the strong force in my family that never wavers. God is that for us. He is a strong force in our family that does not waver. He's not wishy-washy. It's not saying anything about mothers. I'm saying this is the, this is the dad's job. If, if, if this is our role model, guys, he has put us there in our families to be the strong force to point our kids and our communities and our neighborhoods to God. Everything about Jesus was about pointing people to God. Pointing people to the kingdom. Pointing people to salvation. As I said earlier, Satan's been trying to destroy that idea for years. Dads, we ought to believe in our children. That father figure, we need to believe in our children. Their future, their potential. We ought to be firm but loving. Firm but loving. There's a balance there. We ought to provide a place for our children where they can discover their identities and understand who they are in Christ and how God wants to use them in the future. It's not just to go out and get a job. That's what we do for a paycheck. But what is your purpose in God's kingdom? We ought to be thinking and planning for our children's future as well. Planning for their future because they're going to exist, but they're going to live beyond us. We want to pass on our faith, pass on our values, pass on a love for God that goes beyond our lives. Dads, we have a huge responsibility. And Jesus is that father figure for all of us that we can mimic and understand and love. It was evident in the way that Jesus cared for his own people. Look in, in Luke chapter 13. He said, as he wept over Jerusalem, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, 
your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To point you to the Father. I had been here, my brother would not have died when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And Jews said, see how much he loved him? Jesus cared deeply for the people there, for his friends, for his family, for his disciples. He cares just as deeply for you and I. Just because he is not here in the flesh today does not mean that he does not care what goes, what happens in your life. does not mean that he's not intimately aware of what's going on in our lives. If he knows the hair on our heads or the lack of hair on our heads, how many particles are up there? He knows every single detail of what's going on. He knows your fears. He knows your frustrations. He knows your anxieties. He knows your joys. He knows your pains. He says, come to me and lay it at my feet. 